Good evening, everybody. I landed at LAX at noon today from Uganda. I left Friday and I got back today. It's 5 a.m. Uganda time, and I'm very tired. Um, and I, I didn't expect to be alive uh, today, um, and so I had made preparations just in case I wasn't ready to teach to have a dear friend of mine come and fill in for me. And uh, I'm glad I did because I can't even formulate thoughts right now. Uh, but you're in for a treat. And, and before I introduce who's going to be speaking tonight, you're actually going to want him back uh, on a number of occasions. Um, there's an old adage that good preachers borrow and great preachers steal. And so most of the stuff you see I've stolen from him. He just doesn't know it because I hide it. He probably does know it. He does. But I wanted to uh, just show you a couple things, and then I'm going to introduce our speaker tonight. Um, so I was in Uganda, and we, we have um, uh, an, an orphanage and also a school over there uh, called God Speak Uganda. And I met a man by the name of Pastor Fred Kimbangaya. And over in Uganda, if you find an honest man, you've, you've found a miracle. Um, and the church over there is struggling because they're so used to Mzungus, white people, uh, supporting their churches that they've, they've become accustomed to handouts. And uh, their government is struggling. Poverty is rampant. Uh, they have a president there by the name of Museveni, who uh, is trying to change the Constitution. He's at, I think he's 75 years old, and the Constitution says that you can't be president past the age of 75. He wants to change the Constitution to keep going. Um, and he's, he's well-liked, but as you know, Uganda went through Idi Amin, uh, Singapore and Uganda both got their independence from the British Empire in the same year. And uh, Singapore flourished and Uganda imploded. And it all happened because Singapore applied capitalism and Uganda got an oligarchy. And they went through a series of military coups. Um, hundreds of thousands were killed. Idi Amin was a Muslim. And the pastors that survived uh, to church... Uh, called the Full Gospel Church, and it was uh, a church that existed before Idi Amin, and all these pastors were persecuted, and Fred is one of them. And they survived the persecution, and they have a real heart to see Uganda come to a place where it's a flourishing country once again, but they don't know how to do it. And I went over there simply to check on the books and to make sure that the money is being spent properly and to give an accounting of, of all that we do and also to encourage him. And while I was there, um, an informal gathering with a group of pastors, we sat down, and I started to take them through all the principles that I've been teaching you on Wednesday nights. They said, Pastor, could we do a national conference where we gather all the pastors, and you can teach us this so we can implement this in our government? Three of the pastors just in that brief meeting have already committed to running for office. I wasn't there that long. Now, this man right here uh, to, to my right and left, uh, his name is Joffrey. And uh, Joffrey is a member of the congregation, and he also happens to be an elder for Pastor Fred Kimbangaya. And uh, he's a quiet man. He's a baker by trade. Um, and I had, I, I, uh, I had sat down, and they had talked about how he wanted to expand his business. And, and the idea is get the Mzungu, get the white guy aside, and try to get some money out of him. And I said, Joffrey, I'm not going to give you any money, but I'm going to give you a micro loan. And I'm going to loan you the money, and you're going to pay it back. But when you pay this money back, I want you to 
make sure the money is given to a woman by the name of Victorious. And this woman, I don't have her picture, but I will show you this. Um, let's go to the next slide. No, no, back, 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 back. Go to the other one. Go to the other one. Go to the other one. You're blowing it. All right. This little girl, um, her middle name's Grace, and I had the privilege to give her that name, just as I had the privilege to give my daughter Natasha her middle name. Uh, when we adopted Natasha, uh, we were at the orphanage. Um, it was at this critical moment where the the, the government official said uh, to Natasha, uh, do you want them to be your parents? And she said, yes. And then she said through the interpreter, what are they going to change my name to? And we said to Natasha, we don't want to change your name. We, we love your name. We didn't come to change your name. Would you like a name, an extra name, like a middle name? And they explained that to her, and she said, yes. I said, well, we'll, we'll name you Grace after your, your great-grandmother. And, and she said, what does that mean? And we explained it to her. And basically, God's riches at Christ's expense. And she said, I like that. And so her name is Natasha Grace McCoy. Well, I got to name her middle name Grace, but her first name is Rose. Uh, Rose's mother died uh, at birth, and her father shortly or died shortly thereafter, and she was literally left on the street. She just was left there. And this woman, Victorious, came up and saw this baby crying, and um, she picked her up, and she took her home. And Victorious didn't have the money to support her. And I told, and this is the last time I was in Uganda, I told um, Jeffrey, or Joffrey, I said, this microloan will go to support Rose. You make sure that it pays for her schooling. You make sure that she's cared for. And it worked out to about $600 every six months, so $1,200 annually. And she flourished, and this is her today. And Joffrey said to me as we sat, um, let me see if I can get that picture of Joffrey again. As we sat, we, we sat down and there were three pastors in Joffrey. And the pastors were commenting about how they wanted to build this and they wanted to build that and the things that they needed. And they're, they're really trying to work the Mzungu. And I took out 50,000 shillings, which is the equivalent of about, uh, I think that the exchange rate is 3,700 shillings to the dollar. So it's not a lot, but to a Ugandan, it's quite a bit. And I asked them the same question that I've educated all of you on. I said, what is money? And I asked the pastors first. And the pastor said, well, it's a means uh, to purchase things. I said, no. And I turned to the businessman, the baker. I said, what is money? He said, well, it used to be that we would trade and we would barter for the things that we needed for our business. And if we had value of one thing, we'd be able to trade it for value of another. He said, but now it's represented in the form of money. And I said, yes. And the pastors looked shocked. I said, a simple interpretation is money is a representation of the contribution you've made to society. And I said, if you make no contribution, then you have no money. I said, by the sweat of his brow, he bakes bread. And by the sweat of his brow, he goes to stores and he sells that bread. And with the profits he makes, he buys more ovens, he builds larger buildings, and he hires more workers. 
And I turned to one of the pastors, Fred, who is my friend, and I said, Pastor Fred, let's pretend that you are a farmer and you, you, make, you grow wheat. Now, you sell that wheat to Joffrey because of the sweat of your brow, and you obviously make a profit on it. You can buy more fields and hire more workers. Joffrey bakes the bread. He can hire more workers and buy more ovens. And for wealth to be created, two people have to benefit. Your nation has no wealth because you wait for someone to give it to you. You want the sweat of my brow to make you rich. And you've taught your people to do this instead of sweat and work hard. And I said, the church in Uganda is suffering. And right now, the largest churches in Uganda are going through what they call 77 days of worship and praise, waiting for miracles and God's amazing blessing. And if you buy certain grains of rice and you have certain holy water and you can do these things, and they're laboring all night in prayer and they're doing these things. And the president, uh, and, and it's, it's filling the churches with this hope of a miracle happening. And the president came forward, and many people don't believe him to be a Christian of any sort, but he came forward and he spoke to this gathering of pastors and he said to them, I'm grateful for your prayers. I'm grateful for your fervency of your prayers. But if you labored as hard with your hands as you do with your hearts, and instead of spending all night in prayer and exhausting your people for 77 days, if you worked, the country would flourish. And they all booed him. And I turned to the pastors and I said, one of the wisest men in the room of the three pastors I was speaking to, I said, one of the wisest men in the room of all the pastors gathered was the president. He was applying biblical principles because God has given us work as worship. And as I started to instruct these pastors, they understood the concept. I said, Fred, I want you, when I first met you, you were doing microloans. I want to start doing this again so that you build businesses in your congregations. I said, who primarily attends your churches? He said, women and children. I said, you have no men. And the reason why you have no men is because you have nothing to say to them. These men want to work. They want to go into politics. They want to go into business. These women want to go into education. They want to understand principles on how to make their nation flourish. And the pulpits don't teach any of this. And it was, it was as though I was throwing gold coins at them because they, they were taking copious notes. And they asked me to come back and to share these things. Now, the reason why I open with this is because what we're doing tonight and what you're going to see from our speaker tonight, these principles work for any country, for any people. When in the course of human events, that means at any time, it becomes necessary for a people, that means any people, not just Americans, that you understand this DNA, this seed that is implanted in every human heart of freedom. And that freedom means choices. And I took that same illustration as I was sitting at the table and I took a napkin and I cut it into quarters and I said, the government takes 25%. You see me do this. And they were, yes, I get it. And the, and the businessman is saying, I get that. And as they started to understand that the more choices you have, the more freedom you have. But that freedom only comes from liberty. You see, Thomas Jefferson said freedom is having choices, but he also said liberty is doing what's right. And I'm going to put on my pastor's hat, and I'm going to just tell you this. There's a passage in Galatians where the Apostle Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty for which Christ has set you free. You know where he wrote that? 
He was in prison. It doesn't matter where you are, you can always do what's right. And when you stand for liberty, meaning doing what is right, freedom comes to a culture. But it requires doing the difficult thing. It's easy to receive, it's harder to create. And this is an act of worship. This is a sense that God gave us the ability to work. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And we're going to cover these principles. And someone said, is tonight the last class? You said six weeks. I just have to tell you, I've really enjoyed these Wednesday nights. And I think I'm going to keep going until you stop coming. And so I don't want to take any more time. I want to introduce you to our guest speaker tonight. This man has been a great inspiration to me. Uh, What I hold here is one of the finest works in in our generation. It's called the Founder's Bible. And I I have gleaned so much from the articles listed in here um, and insights that I've never before understood or seen through documented, footnoted historical events in our nation that have absolutely opened my eyes. And the two of us, interestingly enough, kind of came to this love for the Declaration of Independence and for the Constitution and for the American legacy and who we are and what we're about uh, simply by conversations and revisiting old documents that neither of us had really learned in school. And we met one time, and I thought I had mistaken him for another person I'd met. I thought he was this really strange person that I had met in my travels, and he asked me if I wanted to go to lunch, and I thought, I don't know if I want to sit with this man. But I came to find out it wasn't the man I thought it was. And the two of us sat over at Islands for what was supposed to be a a 45-minute meeting that I think went for four hours. He is the editor of this, a magnificent work. And his name is Brad Cummings, and he's going to share with you tonight. So would you welcome my friend Brad Cummings? Thanks, sir. You don't have any. I have two. No, they, they, they know what to do. Um, how much time we got? Okay, I got it. There is so much I would love to tell you, but I will stick to our time frame. And um, I'm glad that Rob wants to just keep doing this because, folks, if we don't recover our foundations... We have an awful lot at stake to lose. Um, I'd like to give you a phrase tonight where purpose is not known, abuse is bound to occur. Where purpose is not known, abuse is bound to occur. Abuse comes from abnormal use. You can do a lot of things with a lot of, you know, stuff, but what is the purpose of government. Have you guys covered that? Rob, have you covered that yet? (laughs) I didn't hear if we did, but I've loved these, but can I ask a question? And I don't think there's a wrong answer. What is the purpose of government? To protect man, to provide for the common defense. To promote the general welfare. You guys have been paying attention. That's good. Provide rules and guidelines for society. 
possibly honor our freedoms. Bingo. Probably the most succinct and simple thing. Could we bring up the Declaration of Independence? Here it comes. There we go. Ha ha. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. The simple purpose of government is to protect our God-given rights. It is not the purpose of government to redistribute wealth. It's not the purpose of government to educate us. It's not the purpose of government to decide what to do with our health care. It's not the purpose of government to bail out businesses that have failed regardless of the size. All of those are nice well-intended things, but they're not the purpose of government. Government neither creates anything nor sells anything. Government is an entirely dependent operation upon the citizens who are forming a collective in order to form a more perfect union. The only point and purpose of government is to ensure the freedom of its citizens. And there's two things that are really important that are unique in terms of, I think, this wonderful, wild experiment called America. Is it really derived its understanding? You know how Rob's gone over the laws of nature and of nature's God? That really is acknowledging the fact that we have a creator and he has expressed his will in creation and that phrase included the Bible. It was one of the more often repeated phrases of the day. I mean, it it was, we don't know that because we're no longer kind of up to snuff as far as what they were working out, but Montesquieu and John Locke were two of the most often quoted guys, and they referred to that regularly, and they were referring to the fact that God has revealed his will to us in nature such that nobody is, is, is quote, ignorant or that these things are self-evident because we can see them. But all of the laws that governments make are based upon this thing called moral law, which is a reference to it's revealed in the Bible. This is what God has said. And they all accepted that. They didn't demand that you had a personal faith in it. They just said, if we're going to come together, we have to have some basis upon which we make laws. What is that basis? Well, the ultimate authority, all of them are saying is, Our rights, our freedoms, our everything, we owe our existence to our creator. So if we're going to make laws, they need to be in harmony with his revealed law, or that's a worthless law. That's pretty amazing. 
And when you look at America, what form of government is America? It is a republic. Okay? And by that, we mean that it has it elects representatives to operate and help govern. Who's the sovereign? We the people. Have what is the ultimate authority in this republic? God. Okay. That's it. We got God, we got the citizens, the creator, God, I'm going to put God and the creator together. Okay. We actually have a rather unique, unknown, anywhere else on the face of the planet form of government. That's not just a republic. It's a constitutional republic. And it's not just because it's a reference to the constitution. It's the fact that the ultimate authority is the Constitution, which is derived from the moral law, the laws of nature, and of nature's God. So, yes, God is the ultimate authority. And the Constitution, the rule of law, is above the rule of men. You know, how many of you thought we were in a democracy? Okay, you've been listening and paying attention. But everyone else gets that wrong because we think, oh, we're a democracy. And it's like the founders absolutely abhorred democracy. And you're going like, gosh, that's really weird. Okay? It's not that they didn't value people. It's just that democracy soon devolves into mobocracy where it's the rule of the majority, and if it's just based on the whims of men, if this is a government of men, then whatever they decide, whatever they in the majority want to say goes, they can win. Benjamin Franklin likened a democracy to two wolves inviting a lamb to dinner. And voting on what's to eat. Whereas a a constitutional republic is a well-armed lamb. Because the purpose of government is to ensure the rights of liberty for everybody. And who are they really needing to protect? The weak, the innocent. You know, because otherwise it's might makes right. Okay? That's been happening all over the planet ever since the the dawn of man. Cain imposed that kind of law on Abel. He didn't like it, so he killed him. And what's so amazing about America is never before in the history of mankind, anywhere on the planet, had they ever come up with the idea that you could have a revolution, depose a leader, and then not replace him by just another leader, but a whole new kind of leadership? 
the idea that you and I can govern ourselves had actually never been tried ever in history before. It was so darn successful that you and I, it's like the water in which we have grown up. We don't recognize in a span of history just how unique and how unimaginable in its day the idea that we can govern ourselves really was. You know, Rob and I talked after, was it last Wednesday, there were a couple of comments and questions at the very end that were basically kind of saying, well, what, what can we do? Just rank and file people, you know? Maybe I don't want to be a councilman. Maybe I don't know what to exactly do, but, but what can I do? Fair question? Well, yeah, we can vote and we can elect people. But that is not what made America work. What made America work was the secret sauce of this thing called self-government. If it wasn't for an engaged people, if it wasn't for the fact that this government that they were being entrusted to had never before been tried in the history of mankind. Why in the world did the founders think that it was going to work? You know, there's a beautiful story of, uh, it's about Benjamin Franklin, and they met in 1787 to basically come together and to figure out, well, We've declared our independence. We fought the war. It took 12 years. They didn't think of that. They finally get to a place where it's like, okay, we've, we've, we've beaten England. Now, what are we going to do? And Rob mentioned Shay's Rebellion. Did you, did you go deep into Shay's Rebellion? I won't steal your thunder, but I will say this. Fighting a war against the greatest military force known on the planet was really tough, really costly. Left all the people that had given everything to this utterly destitute and massively in debt. And in the midst of all of that, the people that had loaned all the money, most of them had, you know, were bankers and merchants from Europe. They stopped extending credit to America because they're going like, I just do not see how they're going to pay their bills. It's like we won. We outlasted. I mean, I'm, right now I'm writing a screenplay uh, that has a lot to do with the Revolutionary War. It's extraordinary. But when you look at it, it's like it was one big we lose, we lose, we lose, we lose, we lose. Well, we got one. We lose, lose, lose. It wasn't like the, oh, yeah, we're, I shouldn't say that in church. Um <laughs> We're not as powerful and as strong as we thought. And we, we, out, we outlasted. We survived the Revolutionary War. But in the midst of having people's lands taken and all this other stuff, there were finally like 4,000 guys that just said, enough. You can't squeeze water out of a rock anymore. We're done. You can't keep taking. We'll never recover if you take all my land, all my 
all my work tools, everything. And they stood up. So shortly after we have this revolutionary war, it's like we have citizens rising up against citizens. And they have to pay for another mercenary army to come and quell Shay's rebellion. And it was out of that that they said this loose articles of confederation, it's not going to work. We need a better form of government in order to form a more perfect union. Can we go to the preamble? We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, knowing that the one we had is incredibly fragile and is about to come apart. This next few lines, I think, are enumerating a little more the purpose of government. Some of you mentioned them. To establish justice. Is that what our courts do today? At some point, we need to study the courts because we sort of have labeled the Supreme Court as if it's the law of the land and it's the, the ultimate arbiter of everything. And that's exactly wrong, says the Constitution. They were not ever supposed to serve for life, only during time of good behavior. And there's a bunch that would just be impeached immediately. Okay, because they're, they're not in keeping with what they're supposed to be doing. And yet, because we don't know that, nobody enforces the very contract we have. But their job is to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility. And that has a lot of reference to Shay's Rebellion. It's like we're not supposed to have riots in the street. You know, people can have the right to peaceably assemble, but they don't have the right to riot in the streets. We've got a lot of stuff going on where the police right now are backing up, and I'm going, excuse me, hello? If I own one of those businesses, and that group that has an attitude and wants to be heard, you have a right to be heard, but you don't have a right to throw your bricks through my window and not, not experience the consequences of that. Government has been giving something that you and I have never been given in, in Scripture. It's been given the sword of justice. It is supposed to punish wrongdoers. Its job is to be a deterrent against lawbreakers. That's not my job. That's not your job. Vengeance isn't mine. That's the Lord's. He will repay. But government's. Their job is to be the sword of justice, and their job is to do it with impartiality. Their job is not to pick winners and losers. Their, their purpose is not to rehab criminals. I mean, you know whose job that is? Individuals and neighbors, communities. So much of what we're challenged to do in the Scripture, if we did it, Government wouldn't bother trying. But because we don't hear it as our responsibility and we don't live it as a community of people, we sort of defer it by really bad mistake to the government to do. And they keep taking more and more of your money in the name of doing something they were never called to do. Anyone find that frustrating? 
Well, there's something we can do. And the primary answer to last week's questions at the end is, you know what? If I would be responsible for me, and you would be responsible for you, and I would raise my family in the nurture and the admonition of the truth of God's moral law, you know, I'm committed not to covet my neighbor's wife. I'm not going to steal his stuff. You know, it's like, just go down through the Ten Commandments. At the beginning of all this, they did not suggest, you know what? You have to believe what I believe. They didn't remotely do that. They said, but if we're going to come together as a community and we're going to live in harmony, try to have domestic tranquility, we need to have some things we're going to agree on. And they didn't want another king. So they appealed to the written, revealed will of God, the laws of nature and nature's God. And they said, that will be our court of appeal. Where it speaks, we will, we will acknowledge those are the laws that we should abide by. Didn't demand a personal faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. They just said, but we need to say we're not going to steal. You know? And we got to honor the fact that you and I have the right to private property. That's the pursuit of happiness. Their code. Okay? The other thing is they're to provide for the common defense. It's like the, the government's supposed to stop bad guys locally. And they're also supposed to stop the big bad guys out there to protect us. So they do raise an army, a militia. I mean, whatever needs to, to provide for the common defense. To promote the general welfare. That one's that got really messed up. And they've really argued about how we define those things. One of the things I wished the founders might have done just a teeny bit better is provide a glossary of terms <laughs> as to what did they fully mean about prom- promote the general welfare. Because um, Madison was one of the, the framers of the Constitution. He said, no, 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 we have this whole Bill of Rights and all this other stuff to sort of guard and, and, and limit what government's going to do. And what is specifically not spelled out, they don't just have general freedom to just come up with great ideas. They only have the rights that we give to them, and it's a much more limited perspective. Alexander Hamilton at the, at the time he kind of thought that it, they had a little more leeway with that. And so you have two guys writing the same document thinking something a little different than each other. But as Rob has communicated, they really expected the community of people to be involved in rigorous public debate. They didn't have TV, so what they did is they held debates. And that was the biggest, coolest thing to come and watch. Two guys duke it out with ideas. And what was so amazing about America is that when they founded this land, when they came over, they established, and because of time, I'm going to go real quick. But when the, the pilgrim guys first came over in 1620 or so, 
They weren't our founders. They were our forefathers. And when they came over, why did they come? Religious freedom. Is that it? They didn't want to die and they were being hunted. And they did want to have religious freedom. But here's what I would love for you to, you need to all get into this. You need to get one. If you have trouble, I'll find a way to help you get one. But you need to get one. You go to thefoundersbible.com. There's a warehouse right over the other there where they are all kept. So it'll, it'll arrive to you real quickly. That, Rob said, did you bring anything? I went, no, sorry. Had a busy day. I'm not here to sell stuff, but to understand history. We don't understand it to our peril. What was so amazing about the pilgrims is they never called themselves pilgrims. They never called themselves anything because they weren't following a man or an ism. And they knew that they did not have all truth. They were coming out of the dark ages and they knew that. And they said, God, it hasn't restored to us all the truth. We're still learning. We're still growing. But they had something precious and amazing. They had the Geneva Bible for themselves. They had a chance to to read for themselves what it said. It was outlawed in their day. King James is actually, I'm a direct descendant of King James. I don't like that. He's a nutbag. He's terrible. But he was the one who was coming after to just absolutely hunt and destroy them. But they spent 12 years in Holland before they ever came to the United States. That was the bastion of freedom. And if it hadn't been for the time there, they would not have learned some of the most important lessons that they had learned. Here they are in the center of freedom and everybody's got these great ideas and all they saw in the name of freedom was a ton of bickering and infighting and a war of opinions. And they found out of that a value to say, you know what? We need to be peacemakers. We need to hold aloft several key principles or there is no such thing as freedom. If we don't hold aloft the, the, the supremacy of the individual conscience, where you decide for you what is true, I decide for me how I understand that, and we dignify each other so that your conscience is what you need to follow. It's God first, And the human conscience is the second greatest authority. Whatever is not done from faith, Romans defines as sin. If I don't want to sin, I need to know what my, I need to pay attention to my conscience. When you were born, is your conscience fully developed? No. How does it get written on? How does it become instructed? Experience, learning, the, the word. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to you that if you're not actively seeking out the word of God 
so as to learn about the laws of nature and nature's God, and not just listen to it or hear it preached, but for yourself go like, what do I think about this? Do I agree? I would recommend I'd agree with that. But if you do not find a sense of personal agreement, you're not writing on your heart anything that sticks. If all you do is just listen, you go, oh, that was great. But you don't, you don't, like, I, I agree, I concur. I'm going to hold that truth to be self-evident. It's part of my constitution. Your conscience does not function until it's written on. So when they said, we need to hold the supremacy of the individual conscience, they're talking about diligent students who are instructing their conscience. They're learning and they're growing. The other thing is, they believed in the principle of non-coercion. This whole thing is voluntary, or there is no such thing as freedom. If it is by coercion... That's tyranny. And they saw a line out of 1 Kings 4.25, and it's just a phrase, but it talks about every man under his own vine, under his own tree. And they saw that as the peaceable harmony of those two elements that allow for freedom. That... I need to be responsible for my family. You need to be responsible for yours. And as we come together in a body politic and we make laws, then we work together with that. But I've got to, I want to remain free and I need to dignify you so that you also remain free. And the third, the most important element that those original pilgrims brought to us was the belief and practice of self-government. How are all you? I mean, your own government of your own life. Is it rocking? Sometimes. I, I honestly don't think it's possible for a human being to be free until it has been freed by the one authority that created it. And so unless we start there, all these other things really don't work. That's where all government flows. And again, it's like, if it's going to work together, you decide on your own terms and your own time what it is that you believe. But as we do that together, we have to acknowledge there is some authority and that we will submit to that Where it speaks, we're going to let it speak with authority. And where it doesn't speak, we're going to allow for liberty and the freedom of differences of opinion. Otherwise, it's my tyranny being imposed upon you. Our culture is in an absolute culture war because it has lost the essential ingredients of those three elements that were brought over and they laid the foundation. What is so amazing about the pilgrims is only one-third of them that came over on the Mayflower were believers. Somehow I missed that growing up. I thought they all had turkey hats and guns and and just were believers. Two-thirds of them were not. 
And they knew that we needed to connect. We needed to work together. So we need to establish something that worked for people who believe or don't believe. But in order to do that, we have to have those three little ingredients. There's a clip that I want to show you that I think will help bring a lot of this home. We, 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 I imagine we have many more Wednesdays. And so we can explore this more. But I, I want to set it up. It's from the movie The Gladiator. Okay? This is Marcus Aurelius the Caesar having his moment with Maximus. And what's so amazing is the founders were incredible students of history. They got their ideas of democracy from the ancient Greeks and Romans. And they knew that there was something precious and fragile and amazing. But I think this clip really does have a potent, I think kind of prophetic word to our culture today that I'd like you to listen to. You sent for me, Caesar? Caesar. Tell me again, Maximus. Why are we here? For the glory of the empire, sir. You see that map, Maximus? <coughs> that is the world which I created. For 25 years, I have conquered, spilt blood, expanded the empire. Since I became Caesar, I've known four years without war. Four years of peace in 20. And for what? I brought the sword. Nothing more. Caesar, your life, please. Please don't call me that. Come. Please. Come sit. Let us talk together now. It's fine. Very simply, as men. Well, Maximus. Talk. Five thousand of my men are out there in the freezing mud. 3,000 of them are bloodied and cleaved. 2,000 will never leave this place. I will not believe that they fought and died for nothing. And what would you believe? They Maximus. fought for you. And for Rome. What is Rome, Maximus? I've seen much of the rest of the world. It is brutal and cruel and dark. Rome is the light. Yet you have never been there. You have not seen what it has become. I am dying. When a man sees his end, he wants to know there was some purpose to his life. How will the world speak my name in years to come? Will I be known as the philosopher, the warrior, the tyrant? Or will I be the emperor who gave Rome back her true self? There was once a dream that was Rome. You could only whisper it, anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. And I fear that it will not survive the winter. Maximus, let us whisper now together, you and I. 
Tell me about your home. My house is in the hills above Tehillo. Very simple place. Pink stones that warm in the sun. Uh, kitchen garden that smells of herbs in the day. Jasmine in the evening. Through the gate is a giant poplar. Figs, apples, pears. The soil mark is black. Black like the, my wife's hair. <laughs> Grapes on the south slopes, always on the north. Wild ponies playing in my house. They teach my son he wants to be one. Two years, 264 days, and this morning. I envy you, Maximus. It's a good home. Worth fighting? There is one more duty that I ask of you before you go home. What would you have me do, Susan? I want you to become the protector of Rome after I die. I will empower you to one end alone, to give power back to the people of Rome and end the corruption that has crippled it. Would you accept this great honor that I have offered you? With all my heart, no. Maximus, that is why it must be you. Surely a prefect. A senator, somebody who knows the city, who understands her politics. But you have not been corrupted by her politics. And Commodus? Commodus is not a moral man. You have known that since you were young. Commodus cannot rule. He must not rule. You're the son that I should have had. Commodus. Will accept my decision. He knows that you command the loyalty of the army. I need some time, sire. Yes. By sunset, I hope you will have agreed. <laughs> now embrace me as my son. And bring an old man another blanket. What's so amazing about that, am I st I'm still on. What, what's so amazing about that is when, when Jesus first showed up, he came in the fullness of time. And he showed up at a time in history when there was an emperor. Caesar declared himself as Lord. And Jesus shows up right at that time and says, huh, Interesting. Caesar is Lord, or perhaps Jesus is Lord. You choose your government. Caesar had a thing called the Ecclesia. It was his Senate gathering. It was where all the citizens of the realm would come and gather and listen to Caesar declare his heart and mind, his will. And they would come, and then their job as citizens was to implement that throughout the known empire. And they had an interesting word for the people that didn't show up. 
When the bell would toll, all the citizens would come and gather. And if you heard the bell ring, but you didn't show up, you were called an idiote. We're going to open it up for, you can't leave yet because they're going to ask you questions. Uh, we're going to open it up for questions and answers in just a second. I wanted to share with you this. One of the great joys of the American legacy, and I have deliberately steered away from my pastor's hat, also as a city councilman. Uh, I've, I've strayed away from partisan politics because I want you to understand clearly the documents for which all of us as Americans, regardless of who's present tonight, whether you're as I've said, often agnostic, atheist, Catholic, Protestant, wherever you fit in any of, of the spectrum um, of, of this pluralistic society. But to see the value of the documents themselves, we still have to revisit the history. Now, if you disagree with the history, then footnote it and show me. But that's called revisionist history when you don't footnote what you've spoken of. And the fascinating thing about uh, Brad's work is it's footnoted. And and you really have to go into history and understand these things. The first 10 years of the congressional record, show me one thing in the congressional record where our founders ever spoke of a separation of church and state. One thing in the first 10 years of the congressional record. I've read them all. They don't exist. You do your homework. I don't care about what your community college professor said who didn't give you any footnotes. We're here to teach you how to learn, not what to learn. And, and, and as we go through this and we start to study these things, we become stronger as Americans to understand our legacy. Now, in the room, there's going to be disagreements. And that's the beauty of, of this idea of a pluralistic society that we can debate through this constitution we've been given to come to this understanding and to work through these things of a personal conscience. And I'll share personally with you, some of you may or may not know, my sister, um, who is older than me, um, her political ideals are far different than my own. Um, I, I'm, I'm heterosexual. She's homosexual. And, and uh, we've contended. And, and she asked me to officiate her wedding. And I said I couldn't. And it created conflict in our family. And she was recently married. And uh, we offered to attend. And she said no. And it was interesting because on the radio program that goes out on KDAR, uh, this came through the airwaves, and I received a letter from a listener. He said, it was appalling to hear you say Christians should attend homosexual weddings. Did you applaud? Jesus in no way would behave as such, neither Paul at all. What are you saying in, is Jesus would watch people stealing TVs from Walmart and applauding them as they left the store, maybe encouraging them to go back and steal more TVs, hence attend homo marriages when asked. Surely Satan is laughing all the way to hell when Christians behave like this. Every pastor whom, who has a, a homo relative deceives the congregation by becoming an advocate of this lifestyle. It is so disappointing. The best place in Scripture that defines love is Second John 6. I just pray that you get off the track of pseudo-love, the church, or pseudo-church, is overwhelmed with this nonsense. May the Lord Jesus embolden you to speak the truth. Yes, 
uh, in love and truth, first and foremost, then all the factors can be considered. And I responded, thank you for taking the time to write me. I did, and this was an earlier event that was a, a pledge where she'd taken the name. It wasn't an official marriage, but I said, I did attend. And no, I didn't applaud. And by the way, I actually worked at a Walmart when we were mobbed and robbed. I did watch, and I remained to clean up the mess and comfort those who were devastated and confused. By the way, my sister has repented and come to Christ. I'm pretty happy about that, and I knew you would be too. I have a question. Why is Samson in Hebrews 11? And why is Rahab? I truly am interested to hear your perspective. I struggle over the inclusion, especially Samson. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him after he'd spent an entire night in a bed with a prostitute. It seems that each time the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, he had just indulged in yet another sin. Your insights would be greatly appreciated. Again, thank you for reaching out to me with your concerns and insights. And I truly did. I, I want to hear. He said, um, let me find his response. Where did I put? Oh, here it is. Sorry. He said, now use my name. Hello, Rob. Thank you very much for your response. First, I am the chief of sinners and king of crime or at least I was until I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's interesting because the Apostle Paul began his ministry by saying, I'm a sinner. And the very last letter he wrote, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. You would have thought Paul would have improved. This man did, but Paul didn't. And then he said, secondly, I'm ecstatic that your sister has repented. Attending homosexual marriages, I don't think the matter that you attended her pseudo-wedding led her to salvation. Great assumption on his part. After I was saved, anyone that claimed to be of Christ that didn't share with me, if I had known that they were, I would have questioned why they didn't continue to share the gospel or share the gospel of scriptures, condemning my actions. There's no condemnation in Christ, not outside. Rahab was protected, was protecting godly people. She still lied. And then my next question is, what about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lied to Nazis to protect Jews? I don't think you were protecting uh, godly people by attending this event. Samson, many people have been used after major sins. David, probably the most notable. He, he didn't answer my questions. And, and I, I look at this, and, and there's room to, to, to disagree. But there's room for healthy debate. And the beauty of the Constitution we've received gives us that ability to contend and to come to these understandings. And, and if we lose this document, we lose this ability of a society to freely go back and forth with our conversations. And if I disagree with what you say, I will silence you. And after they gave us the seven articles of the U.S. Constitution, what was the very first amendment that they gave us? Freedom of speech, freedom of the press freedom of religion, and the freedom to peacefully assemble for the right of redress of grievances against the government. They knew that these articles could only be effective if the people had the freedom to hold their representatives accountable. And they knew that the pulpit and the press and the people were absolutely necessary. And what Brad has brought to you tonight is, you want the answer? It's self-government. Being educated and being active. Now, there are going to be battles you're going to lose, but ultimately it's the war you want to win. 
And as he laid out how many battles the Continental Army lost were far more than they won. And I know each week that you ask me questions, what do I do or how do I do it? And I understand that. And sometimes, and I really felt convicted last week, and it was over here, and I I wanted to apologize. I felt as though I had taken time to explain it, and yet it, it was, the question was, well, what can we do? And I don't want us to be overwhelmed by the horizon. I want us to focus what's in front of us and do it here. Just keep it simple and practice it here. Practice it in your life. The government begins with autonomy, you and your in the Lord. Then it begins in your family, and then there's a church government, and there's a local government, and then there's a county government, and a state government. And a there's a lot of work to be done at the lowest levels. And instructing and educating. Literacy is the greatest gift to provide freedom. And so... I know you're going to ask questions tonight, what can I do? If you make them specific, I'm happy to answer them. What I'd ask is when we do this question and answer period, please look at the size or the number of people in the room. Don't dominate the question and answer period. Ask the question. If you have a comment, that's fine, but just keep the comment concise. Um, You've had time to write it down and to present it. But let's give everybody an opportunity while we have limited time. So... Let's do it. We're a little late, but that's my fault. We're going to go 14 minutes late tonight, and you can leave anytime you want. All right. Any questions or comments? Yes. Um, part of the problem facing like education um, at the highest levels, four of our last five presidents have been from Harvard or Yale. What a constitutional scholar. So the question, I have to repeat it for the sake of those listening uh, on the internet, is um, many of our presidents were educated at Harvard and Yale. Uh, one specifically, most recently, you speak of President Obama, a constitutional historian, and, and yet it, it seems as though it, they don't honor the Constitution in that capacity. Um, and education is of great importance, but these institutes of higher learning, which seem to be the pinnacle of our universities, um, are producing the antithesis of those who understand the Constitution. Is that, did I answer that correctly? Yes. All right. Go ahead, Brad Hatcher. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly think that the primary thing is we're abdicating the responsibility of education to others. All of this is here. The Constitution does not need, you do not need to be a legal scholar to understand it. They wrote it purposely so that it could be understood by every single person in the country, farmers and businessmen, you know, educated and, and, and not. It, it's simple English. It's not difficult. There are some elements where I do wish they actually defined them a little more, but that's what we have the Federalist Papers all about. They argued those things. And so I would say, you know, most every single university that um, was established in this country was for the purpose of the glory of God and knowledge was its pursuit. Harvard and both Yale were Christian universities. The word college means a gathering of clergy. They were all seminaries. They were educating people in the wisdom and admonition of the scriptures for the purpose of training people 
so that we wouldn't have the problems of the dark ages where only a few would know what's going on. So I get that our education system's whacked, but educating yourself is free. It just takes the time to invest in. That's where we really... Now, let me, let me jump in go. here. Let me give you a simple answer locally, something that I've been thinking of. I would like to put together, if the school, if the school district, if the Conejo Unified School District isn't open to doing it, I would like to see a group of citizens get together to offer at each of the high schools um, outside of, of the school itself meeting off hours so that we wouldn't infringe on the difficulty of what they're trying to deal at the state level, and their hands are tied in many respects, where we offer civics classes, and, and the, the top 10 students who attend this three-month civics class and do the best, and they're also going to be graded on it, will receive a $1,000 scholarship that will be funded by those that see this. If the schools won't do it, let's do it privately, but invite public school students to participate in that. Amen. I would like to see our school system implement it, but let's start thinking outside the box. Come up with solutions. Any donkey can knock down a barn door, but only a carpenter can build one. Let's start building some doors. I want you to think about it. Come up with ideas. That was just me, and I'm, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Yes, back here. So the question is, how do you keep civility um, in, in public debate, especially in regards to politics? Is that the question? Again, I got an idea. Go ahead. I think we've lost the real capacity to kind of listen so as to really hear what the other person is saying. If your goal is to win the argument, you're going to have a good fight. If the goal is to understand where another fellow citizen who's you created in the image of God is someone that has their freedom of their conscience and you dignify them as you listen to what's going on. I think you can make incredible ground that you can find some agreement on. I I would say I'm, I'm more of a Bible based conservative standpoint, but so much of the liberal side, you know what I could absolutely agree with is their motivation of compassion I might not agree with their solutions, but I am, I, I am amazed by their heart for other people. And I go like, my gosh, if, if more of us did that well, they might listen more to what it is that I think their heart's beating for. So I'll give you an example, a personal example. Uh, what is it when the president uh, signs something, a, a presidential order, right? Executive order. So the president did the executive order on immigration. Do you remember that? And uh, we had uh, a number of people show up at the Islamic Center to protest, and all of Borchard was covered, and it was close to 1,000 people. And that was on a Sunday. Uh, on that Saturday, there was an article that came out in the Ventura County Star, and um, there was a man by the name of John Cummings who heads up a group called Indivisible Conejo. And he is going to be for the left what the Tea Party was to the right, and they're going to take back government and... They're going to target specific people, and Rob McCoy is on our radar. And that was, that was in the article. And the reporter called me and said, um, how do you feel about being targeted? Or I can't remember, uh, monitored. And I said, my response was, you know, love hopes all things. I said, well, I don't believe it's nefarious. I think he, he wants to, I would be happy to, 
to debate with Mr. Cummings at any time, not Brad, but John Cummings, <laughs> I'd be happy to debate with him any time and have a civil conversation. And, and that was in the article, and the article came out, and, and the reporter was moved by that. And then the mayor called me, and she said, Rob, would you come out to the gathering at the Islamic Center? And she invited all the other council members uh, because we're coming out to support democracy, which I struggled over the word. Um, but she said, would you come out? And I, I, I teach two services on Sunday, 9 and 11, and it was at 1 o'clock, and I'd have to push to get over there, and I'm tired. <clears throat> but I thought to honor those in positions of authority, I said, okay, I'll come out. And I remember walking, and I parked the car, and my heart is pounding, and I'm walking down Borchard, and it's, it's a thousand people who didn't vote for me. <laughs> and as I'm across the street, my heart's pounding, and I, I see a man in, in, a, in, in a typical Muslim outfit, and I'm getting ready to cross the street, and I, I literally called my wife, and I said, I'm saying goodbye. <laughs> jokingly serious and I I just said you know putting on my pastor's hat I just said God would you send me a friend I'm a little uncomfortable I looked to my right and here's a man in his Muslim outfit and I said hey I'm Rob McCoy and he told me his name and I said what do you do he says I I work over uh, Dr. Bob um, Lee where does he work Skyworks yeah I'm an engineer and I'm from Pakistan I just got married oh great he says I said is this is this your Islamic center? Is this your mosque? He said, yes. He says, thank you for coming out to support us today. I said, oh, I'm glad to be here. And he said, let's go across the street and I'll introduce you to the imam. And I walk over and I meet the imam. I get a tour of the mosque and people are looking at me. Why is he here? And I could just feel the eyeballs looking at me. <clears throat> no other council members showed up. Um, Mayor Bill de la Pena was there. And, and she sees me and her face lights up. And she runs over and she says, Rob, thank you for coming. I said, Claudia, you asked me to come. Why wouldn't I be here? And I'm scared to death, quite honestly. <laughs> and, and as I'm standing there, the man says, you're Rob McCoy? This is, I think his name was uh, Samir, maybe. He says, you're Rob McCoy? I said, yes. And he looked at me like, I just walked you across the street. You're Rob McCoy? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you're not who I thought you were. And I think you're shocked to realize I'm not who you thought I was. And he smiled and he hugged me and he introduced me to his wife and we were friends. And at that moment, Claudia says, Rob, I want you to meet someone. And she brings this man up. She says, John Cummings, I want you to meet Rob McCoy. <laughs> and I said, John, I came today so it'd be easier for you to monitor me. <laughs> <laughs> and we both laughed. And, and what was interesting is <clears throat> because of my presence there, the tone of the speeches for those who considered me to be a friend were softened. Mm-hmm. Our presence is civility. If you go to make war, that's one thing. But if you walk in to serve, and I'll leave you with this last thought. William Wilberforce ended slavery in the British Empire 35 years before America did. And America lost 650,000 people in a field of battle. England didn't fire a shot. That was an amazing accomplishment. But by his own admission and that of his peers, it wasn't his greatest accomplishment. Think about that. They said the greatest accomplishment of William Wilberforce is that he brought civility to government Mm. and ushered in the Victorian era. I think if we start acting kindly, 
and, and instead of reacting, respond. And realize that people aren't the enemy, they're the opportunity. They'll give you an ear. And here's one more thing. People don't so, care so much to know about you, they want you to know about them. I find I gain a lot of ground when you ask a lot of questions. And they'll tell you everything. So practice it. It's easier to build our barricade and throw the bombs over the other side. Trust me, I'm the last guy who wanted to go to the mosque that day. I was scared to death. But I'm immortal until God's done with me. So I don't know if that helps, but that's the best I can give you. I, I have not seen any of his writings in regards to me as of late. And I don't hear much about Indivisible Conejo. However, they are meeting pretty actively and they have plans for 2018. But I doubt they're getting this many people in a room. All right. <laughs> uh, back here. Did I, I must have insulted everybody. I'm so sorry about that last comment. Token conservative in a university. Yeah, you, you, a gentle answer turns away wrath, and a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Those are proverbs. You can read them. And, and it's, it's not so much what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. And I think as a professor, having relationships with folks you go to work with every day, and you share these things in a general conversation where you're having, yeah, it's absolutely effective. And I think when you build these relationships, they're open to receiving. And I've had amazing conversations with people who are incredibly ideologically opposed. But because of the relationship that's been built and you throw that out there, they go, oh, you know, I didn't realize that. And it is very helpful. Thank you for that. That's, that's insightful. Um, yes, back here. Now that I'm being monitored, do I get shocked a lot? Oh, <laughs> it's on my ankle, and I, I, had, I had back surgery, and so that leg's numb. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. To curtail, curtail attorneys? <laughs> I've got my own thoughts on that, but I'll keep on going. 
I, I, you know, I, I think one of the things, especially when we looked at this idea that that our founders realized that this is something that has to be done through patience and diligence and debate, I think we have to encourage our, our young people into higher education. I think we have to encourage them to get into those professions. You know, uh, Brad's a producer. He just came out with a, a, an amazing movie, over $100 million. Mm-hmm. And the church dumped on him. We we're so pious that we, we separate the secular from the holy, and we pick fly poop out of pepper. When, when really what we need to do is step into the middle of it. When William Wilberforce took on slavery, he got neck deep in it. And, and I, I think we have to engage the culture. Not to cry it, engage it. And, and I, I think get our kids involved. Start pushing them towards law. Um, and I, I think what we do is, li- like we said earlier, start locally. Pick something up locally. Start, start getting civics classes. Um, get people together to contribute so we can put those scholarships together. Every Eagle Scout that graduates uh, with an Eagle Scout in Troop 711 here gets a $4,000 scholarship, $1,000 a year for four years fully uh, taking a full course unit. Do we really want to change it? Then it's going to require sacrifice, ideas. And so think about it. Let me know what you've come up with. I'll help you. People have helped me. Let's come up with ideas. I know what the problems are. And I see the horizon. But I'm, I am not going to be paralyzed by the horizon. I'm going to start making a difference right here. One more question. Was there one more? Let, let me add just one thing. Our courts, they used to be courts of justice. And we as citizens were called citizen jurors. And our job was not to just do jury duty or try to get out of it. Our job was to sit there and listen to the court to keep the judge in check, to keep the lawyers in check, and to also listen to the law and see if the law indeed was just. And if the law was not just, we would vote to see that the law would be amended so that justice could be done. And each and every one of the students, we had literacy laws because if we didn't have literacy laws and people didn't know the word of God, then they couldn't be effective um, citizen jurors and our courts would never work. Now, if that's the foundation we came from, we would never have lawyers today circumventing justice by their lawyering. Because we would have something knowledgeable with power, we the people, to keep them in check. There's a, there's a man who came to me whose daughter went through uh, rehab and um, then was arrested, went through the court system. And he, as he participated in this court system, he started to realize how it does nothing to strengthen the family or resolve the issue. It is a money-making venture. And so instead of looking at the problem and decrying it, he is diligently sitting down to, to come up with a solution as, as a person with conviction to, to come up with a solution for this. And he's actually come up with something brilliant. I don't want to tell you what it is because I don't want to steal his thunder, but it is profound and powerful. It is an app. I can't tell you that. And what it will do for the families in the court systems is phenomenal. And how it will direct families and individuals to the areas of need. I would say 
we get so used to sitting in a room and decrying the decline of our nation. Why don't we put our effort towards coming up with solutions? And that's, that's, this man's inspired me, so I've been really moved by it. 